Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. I am so excited about the guest we have on tonight. I've been following her for some time. Her name is Christine Anderson. She's a member of the European Parliament. She lives in Germany. Uh, she's been traveling Canada recently, been traveling the U.S. recently, and really privileged to have her on and learn a lot about her perspectives of what's happening in Europe. And for that matter, she's in touch with what's happening around the globe. Christine, thank you for being on with us tonight. We so appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to take the first uh, first two minutes, if you would, just tell your life story. It'll tell you tell a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and how you ended up getting becoming a member of the European Parliament. Well, there is really not much to to tell. I mean, you know, I'm just a regular person. Um, it grew up, and yeah, I was always a handful. Um, my teachers will attest to that readily. Um, so, uh, but pretty much just you know regular normal life. Um, I have three daughters. I was uh, 20 years a stay-at-home mom and, uh, you know, took care of my kids and made sure they had a good start in life. Um, yeah, and, you know, for the most part, as far as, you know, policy was concerned and politicians and stuff like that, it was like, it was actually, you know, kind of kind of okay. Um, but things started, uh, well, turning out not so good after a while. So in 2007, that was like my waking up moment. And what triggered it was uh, pretty much the subprime crisis in the United States and how it swapped all over the globe and, you know, ruining economies everywhere. Um, so I, you know, just kind of start what's going on and come to realize that, um, you know, people have practically been forced to buy a house, a home in the United States, not really being able to afford it. Uh, and they've been lured in, you know, by promises, oh, next year it's going to be, you know, 50% uh, uh, worth or the, the value will, will increase and, you know, we'll, we'll uh, top that even and you'll get a loan on that. And, and But it, as it turns out, it, things don't work that way. So, um, yeah, that was like uh, really mm, disconcerting that because the abyss, I started looking into became deeper and deeper and uh then we had the euro crisis of course and uh you know all the things going on uh within the eu and uh yeah i used to vote you know the, for the former conservative party and the former liberal party uh in germany you have two votes so um yeah and i did so up until 2005 and 2009 i could no longer vote for these parties and uh, that political homelessness that I experienced, I would have never thought that it would get to me uh, to that extent, but it did. And uh, not knowing, you know, what party represents my interest anymore. Um, that was, that was not a good feeling actually. So in 2013, my party was founded. I heard uh, about it on, on TV and I was like, whoa, what is this? I mean, EU skeptics, uh, Euro skeptics. Um, I was like, well, I got to research this. And, and I did. And uh, at that point, I decided to, uh, yeah, just uh, get involved, get active, be active, actively uh, uh, in, in politics. 
And uh, so here I am, uh, EU uh, member of EU Parliament. And uh, I really have to say, uh, joining a party and becoming actively involved in politics, it, it really was an act of self-defense at that point, because I didn't know, you know, what to do anymore. Um, so that's what I did. That's interesting. Very interesting phrasing. It's an act of, joining a party became for you an act of self-defense. Um, un unpack that just a little bit more, what you mean by that. Well, like I said, I mean, you know, I, I was quite, you know, satisfied with the party. I mean, ever since I was eligible to vote, I voted for the Christian Democrats and uh, the, the free liberals. Uh, and I had been doing so, you know, up until 2005. And um, but I no longer could vote for these parties because they had left their values. They had. Uh, you know, pretty much started started out becoming woke, uh, even though it wasn't a term back then. But um, yeah, it was like they no longer represented the people's best interests. They no longer acted uh, uh, on their behalf. Um, they seemed to pursue some kind of other agendas, but these agendas had nothing to do with uh, what actually is good for the people. So, yeah, it, it really was an act of self-defense um, because they didn't do it right. And uh, I was like, well, you know, they say if you want to get something done and get it done right, you have to do it yourself. And that's what I did. Well, if you were to just list the issues that provoked you into awareness and that motivated you since then, they don't have to be in the right ranking, highest to lowest, but just list for me, one, two, three, four, five, what are the key issues at stake here that has motivated you to take action? Uh, well, the general, uh, um, just in general, that it was no longer about uh, what the people wanted and the people needed. Um, it started, they started to, uh, yeah, lecture people on what they had to want kind of thing. So it was no longer uh, that the people decided the policies they w wanted uh, to be implemented. Uh, it was more like uh, the politicians, the governments decided, and then they indoc literally indoctrinated the people uh, to kind of get in line with whatever they wanted. So it was no longer, you know, from, from the bottom up, it was like top down <clears throat> kind of thing. And um, especially looking at um, the whole uh, Euro crisis, they called it Euro crisis, which it actually wasn't. Um, <clears throat> so in Germany, we were told, uh, well, you know, the poor Greek, we have to help him out. And, you know, it's uh, it's really the, the good thing to do uh, to be, you know, helpful and, and help him out and, and bail him out. But it was never about the Greek people. Um, what Germany actually did was bail, bail out banks. That's what it was all about. And how that worked is like, you know, the, the Greek government could no longer pay their, their, their loans. And um, so Germany said, well, yeah, we, we have to save the euro, right? Uh, and they said, well, we, we're going to help you out. Well, Germ the German government didn't have any money either. So what they did is they took out a loan, let's say by Bank A and Bank B, and uh, transferred that money to the Greek government. And then the Greek government turned around and paid off their loans. Guess at what banks? 
bank A and bank B. So it was pretty much just um, uh, securing that the banks would not lose out any money. Uh, that's what it was all about. So, and you know, all the things surrounding all of that, it was a lot of gaslighting going on, a lot of manipulation. And ever since then, it's it, it just, I mean, they just keep going. They really just keep going. Looking at the EU institutions in and of itself, they're not only uh, undemocratic, they're downright anti-democratic. They're the violation of, of, of democratic principles. I mean, it, it's insane what they're doing, but they always you know, frame it in such a way that's, oh no, it's all about democracy. No, it's not. It's about uh, taking control away from the people, removing the democratic processes further and further away from the people um, up until a point where the people no longer know who they can even hold responsible for certain decisions. You know, the elitism and the totalitarian authoritarianism wrapped up in one. Well said. I'm going to ask one more personal question. I want to jump in. I want to ask you about uh, World Health Organization. I want to ask you about Islamization of Europe. Uh, a number of things to ask you about. Um, before I do, I want to ask a personal question. You're, uh, I've watched some of your speeches and you're able to stand strong and bold. Give me some insight. This, I'm asking this question for the benefit of those people who are being gaslighted and who are sick of wokeness. And it's hard to stand. They find it hard to stand up and be bold. You've taken a lot of heat. You've taken a lot of criticism to stand up. How have you been able to do that? I'm using this as a coaching time for everybody who will listen to this. How are you able to stand when the heat is on? Um, interesting question, which I can't really answer. Uh, to a certain extent, I guess that's just the way I am. Um, I've always kind of been like that. Whenever I saw something going on that I thought was unjust, I, I stepped up and I said something, uh, no matter the consequences. And uh, I mean, I remember I was like, what, 10 or 11 years old, I barged into a, into a boy's restroom um, because there were like 17, 18-year-old guys uh, trying to to dictate who can use that restroom. Uh, that restroom, and it was like a schoolmate of mine. Uh, he needed to use it, and they just told him he couldn't. So I just barged in there and I told him off, pretty much. So it's it's kind of like it's that in, in situations like that, I don't really think. I just act. You know. Uh, kind of like, um, yeah, maybe I should have thought about some things before, but, you know, it's it's too late at that point. So I, I kind of always been like that. But the thing is this, um, you are betraying yourself. If, if, you, if you buy into something that you <clears throat> in your heart know to be not true and you don't say anything, what does it do with yourself? You're betraying yourself at this point. And uh, that is just, I, I cannot live with myself knowing that um, someone was, you know, had said something that I thought to be false or not true or even mean. Uh, and I did not say anything about this. So I don't know. I, I, just, I just have a hard time dealing with stuff like that. 
So I just have to speak up and I just, you know, have to do something about it. Let's go right to uh, a key topic. We've been, we've done, I suppose, four or five, six shows on the World Health Organization and the calamity that's coming upon us soon unless we get this stopped. Bring our listeners up to speed. Where are we on that situation? What is the next step that who is attempting to do to rob us all of our national sovereignties? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's actually quite fr frightening when, when you really look at it. So um, it, it started out that they were trying to amend the contracts, um, but that luckily failed. And I uh, will have to say, Thank, thanks to all the people around the world that protested against this and that voiced their opinion about this, um, which ultimately led to the fact that the United States, <clears throat> they had uh, proposed 14 uh, amendments to the contracts, uh, which led to the fact that they withdrew 12 of them. Um, the two remaining ones, uh, the, these uh, 12 that they withdrew, they were pretty much about uh, seizing uh, government uh, control, government powers uh, in case of the next pandemic and, you know, some outlining as to uh, authorities they would, you know, get like, uh, yeah, they will be able to decide, you know, what you can write on social media, for instance, they would be able uh, to, to um, dictate to you what kind of uh, medical uh, preventions you have to undergo, what medical procedures in terms of, you know, vaccines and that kind of thing. And, you know, a global vaccine passport, all of that. But the United States who uh, proposed uh, these uh, amendments, uh, 12 of them, like I said, they withdrew. And the two remaining ones, they dealt with uh, time, uh, the, the, the time frame as to once an amendment has been accepted, when will it go into effect? And they dropped that time period from 18 months to 12 months. So whatever amendment is now being proposed and is being accepted, it will go to effect, uh, into, in, in effect uh, 12 man, months after that. Um, but like I said, the, the real crucial ones that they were withdrawn, however, what they're doing now is now they're um, trying to change the international health regula regulations. And these changes um, that they're planning on implementing uh, are pretty much the exact same thing as those <clears throat> 12 uh, withdrawn amendments. Once again, uh, uh, granting them govern governing powers, seizing the, the governing powers uh, of the member states in case of a pandemic and uh, also, you know, have control over social media, uh, what's fake news and all of that, uh, imposing a, a global uh, digital uh, COVID pass, uh, um, sorry, vaccination pass, all of that. So, um, yeah, this is, this is still up. And um, uh, the thing is, though, with these international health uh, regulations, once they're, once they're implemented, there's pretty much nothing that people can do anymore. Um, the only thing that uh, a country could do at that point is to actually leave WHO, um, which, yeah, might then be what what we have to do. But it's it's really despicable. But the thing is this: looking at WHO, it's just one aspect. It's just one aspect of a whole 
spectrum of illiberal, anti-democratic uh, uh, procedures and, and implementations they're aiming for. Uh, I already mentioned the EU institutions. This is an organization which strips the member states of EU of their sovereignty, uh, strips the people of their fundamental rights. Um, we're talking about uh, uh, abolishing uh, the power of the, uh, the division of power, the fundamental principle of every democracy, division of power. It's just been you know, wiped out with the EU institutions, the way they're constructed and the way they, they work. Um, so, and like I said, it's, it's about removing democratic processes further and further away from the people. Um, so they will no, no, no longer know who they can hold accountable for. And in terms of the WHO, it's that, that's particularly despicable because think about it, WHO is a non-elected body uh the you know super rich buy their way in uh by donations and then they get to decide um what the people have to follow you know what rules they have to follow and by doing that it, it pretty much serves two purposes for one um it gives the elected governments in the in the member states plausible deniability because what they figured out during COVID is the restrictions they would have wanted to implement, they really couldn't because politicians are up for re-election. And if you really slam down on people and strip them completely of every fundamental right and you know take it to the next level pretty much, um, then people might not vote for them anymore. So they have a problem. But if they now tell WHO, well, you go ahead and you do it, then they get to say, well, to, to their own people, we would have never imposed those restrictions on you. We would have never done that. It's WHO. There's it, nothing we can do. So implausible deniability for those who will be up for re-election. And WHO, who is imposing these restrictions or will do, um, we never voted for them. So there is no repercussions. You cannot vote them out of office. They are not accountable to you. They do not have to justify anything to you. You cannot kick them out of office. So there you go. Democracy is being abolished. That's what this is all about. That's really an interesting, uh, I hadn't thought about this plausible deniability component. That is really very insightful. Uh, the, the phrase you said, the, the super rich buy their way in, uh, tell me how that works, because I'm not familiar with the internal working structure of who is who, is who, who, who are the people who comprise uh, the, WA, the World Health Organization. Well, the WHO pretty much runs on donations. So, um, you know, Bill Gates used to be uh, the, the number one donor. Um, so, and if he donates, you know, if he takes the, the, the top position in donations, yeah, he, he gets to have a say in things, obviously. You know, interesting enough, though, is um, Germany has now taken top lead in donations. As a, as a country. 
So we are now a, a number number one donator. But it's like, like I said, you know, if I want, wanted to have to say something in the world, and if I wanted to subjugate every country or member state of WHO, yeah, and I had a lot of money, that's what I would do. I would buy my way into WHO via donations, and then I get to say, and, and I, I get to call the shots. It, it just work, works like that. Um, the I remember them at one point hearing about like 314 amendments or something. Uh, and I remember hearing about the language. Human rights had been replaced uh, with something else. And then the definition <clears throat> of pandemic. Uh, a pandemic included uh, whatever they called a pandemic, which meant it could be climate change. <clears throat> and of course, John Kerry made a big speech about that, that now the purpose of the World Health Organization was climate change in Geneva a few months ago. Uh, and then the guns could be uh, considered a, a, a pandemic. And the one that was most bizarre to me that I read about was an infodemic. That was a pandemic of misinformation or disinformation based upon what they labeled to be misinformation or disinformation. Uh, I, I've laid out three or four things. Just talk to me about any of those three or all of them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they just, you know, can define as a pandemic whatever they want. And um, it's interesting, though, I mean, the, the, the term pandemic, as we knew it, they even changed that. They changed the requirements as to when we have a pandemic. Uh, it used to be that you had numerous cases um, in, in various countries. You know, we we're talking like, what, 10, 15, 20 countries. And you would have to have hundreds of cases in, you know, 15 or 20 countries. Now they uh, pretty much, you know, cut it down to, well, if there is like 10 cases in two regions of the world, whatever that means, um, then you have a pandemic, right? So um, they changed that definition. And um, it, it's also a, a, a pandemic uh, of life-threatening nature. They changed that too. And uh, what it will say, if, if it goes through, in the new uh, international health regulations is the mere potential of a pandemic wow. will be enough uh, to call out a pandemic. And then we're talking about, you know, you have two cases of dengue fever, fever in like Africa. Yeah, that's a potential health risk. Of course it is. Et voila, and you have a pandemic. And then they, you know, come and seize government powers and uh, dictate, literally dictate uh, to the world uh, what they have to do. Um, they will control social media, whatever, you, what you can and cannot write on, on social media anymore. And it's not like they haven't done that in the past. The Twitter files revealed it all. And it started very early on. You know, from the get-go with the, uh, where did this virus come from? You know, was it zoonotic or was it a lab, a lab-grown virus, whatever? Even that they suppressed that from the very start. And they knew very well that it was, in fact, a, a lab-grown virus that had been released. 
what we don't know was by accident or you know was it purposely um at this point I, i'm still giving them the benefit of the doubt it probably was an accident but the point remains they have been uh, researching they have been doing gain of function um which uh that's pretty dangerous it really is for those just joining us we're talking to christine anderson member of the european parliament it would be an honor enough just for her to be a member of the parliament of her own country germany uh, but she's a member of the parliament of the entire european union what is that uh, christine i can't remember is it 751 is that the number of members of parliament it, it used to be 751 it's now uh, uh, 705 because the great britain dropped out and all of it, uh, not all, they had like 76 seats or something like that. And they re uh, uh, um, took 46 of those seats and, and gave smaller countries an additional seat. And uh, they have like 28 or something like that back in store. So it's 705 now. On, on a lighter note, it, it, it baffles the mind of those of us not oriented to the European Union, uh, how you could meet in Brussels three weeks of the of the month and then everybody has to travel one hour by flight or five hours by car i think it is down to strasbourg and there I you know. have to be for three days so i know 700 700 know. elected officials you know what it's, it's, it's insane you have no idea how much that costs the taxpayers i mean it's insane the the logistics of it you know alone so every MEP has like, you know, a big box and uh, it gets transported with all the documentation you need in Strasbourg. So it gets tra transported uh, to, to, to Strasbourg. Then the entire car park, uh, all of the official cars are being transferred from, uh, from Brussels to Strasbourg. There is no one sitting in there aside from the, the driver, right? So, um, but yeah, we do have a problem with, uh, with climate, right? And we wanna save the planet and, and here they go. It, it's ridiculous. It really, so what they do with the cars now, they uh, um, changed them to, to electric cars. And then there is like a problem on Monday when we go to Strasbourg on Mondays. Um, they're driving the cars down to Strasbourg and then they're they're done. They, they, they have to be charged. But they only have like like two two power chargers. So when the MEPs are ready to leave the building and need to go to wherever, there is like no car there because they're all being charged. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's I know. Not, but it's, it, the, it's insane. It's really insane. For you Americans, let me just finish. They, they, they go down there, they have to vote in Strasbourg. So they have two headquarters and they go to Strasbourg to actually vote. They have to meet there three days. So they meet parts of two days. And, and I mean, part of a third then to, to comply with the law, uh, do their vote there. And then all their all their files are loaded on the trucks and hauled back. The whole staff, all the staff and the 705 delegates all go yes. back <laughs> every month. Every month they do this. Yes. This is the yes. Uh, amazing, amazing yeah. process. I, I'm going to ask this. We don't have to spend time, much time on this. How did that originate? Why would they that, do that? Well, that originated in the fact that uh, France insisted on having a, a parliamentary seat or, you know, have, having, having a parliamentary building within their country. 
um, because they had pretty much already decided it was going to be in Brussels, uh, Belgium. But France insisted, uh, no, we, we want a, a parliamentary building uh, within our country too. And that's that was like a concession <clears throat> uh, to get France on board. Um, so yeah, that, that's what they did. And it, it was like even during COVID, right? So, I mean, here is like this deadly disease, you know, which is, you know, going to kill us all unless we abide, you know, by all the rules. Um, so, but still, it's like, yeah, we traveled to Strasbourg, like, you know, on schedule. And uh, then it was like in Strasbourg was, was a real hot spot for, you know, uh, uh, COVID infections. <clears throat> but we still went. <laughs> On the, on the other hand, it was like within the in the building, we had to wear masks and people would go nuts because I never wore a mask. People would go nuts. They accused me of killing people, uh, posing a threat to all of them, what have you not. It was so ridiculous, so utterly ridiculous. The uh, staff of the MEPs, at some point, there was only one staff member of every MEP even allowed in the building. They wanted to cut down on the people, you know, uh, the pot potential of uh, spreading uh, the virus. But what they did not do, however, is um, what they should have cut, that would have made sense if they had cut down on traveling. I mean, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people traveling each week from their home country to Brussels, home country to Strasbourg, wherever. Had they, but the staff members were not allowed in the building in, in, in Brussels, but they had to be present in physically present in Brussels. So they did not cut down on the traveling. You just go like, you guys are not making any sense whatsoever. Are you sure? Seriously? No, you, I read about you refusing to wear a mask and then they even lead you here. You are a member of parliament. And, and they made you yeah. leave the room. They escorted you out of the room. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was kicked out of a, of a committee meeting. Um, that was quite interesting, actually. It was uh, the infamous FUM committee. Uh, that is the committee that is responsible for uh, equal rights for women and, and gender equality. So ideologically toxic committee, as you can imagine. And we were discussing on that day uh, the abuse of uh, of authority to uh, yeah discriminate against women, right? And here she was, the president of the committee, not wearing a mask herself, because the the committee president, uh, when she's presiding, was exempt uh, of of having to wear a mask, and she is bashing down on me for not wearing a mask. And uh, yeah, she stopped the meeting. She called in security. And so I said to the, what are you going to do? Are you going to care, physically carry me out of the room? And we're like, oh, no, of course not. Of course not. I was like, well, what's your, your game then? <laughs> what are you going to do? But the thing is, though, I had an exemption. For medical reasons, I cannot wear a mask. But I was still kicked out. But the point is this. I was kicked out because I'm a member of the party that I'm a member of. Had it been a social democrat or, or left or, or green, it would have been all good. But it was me. So I yeah, I I was I was kicked out of the room.
Right. I want uh, I want all of you to see the boldness of this lady speaking uh, before the, at the European Union in a meeting regarding uh, the World Health Organization. It's only five minutes, but I want you to watch this and watch this powerful speech by Christine Anderson. And you can see why I respect her, the way she stands up. Yeah, thank you so much for coming today. And thank you, Misla, for uh, really putting in the work and making this happening today. And I really will have to say, I am so very honored to be here with seven very brave citizens who came here today to launch an initiative for a European citizens initiative, an initiative which will hopefully be accepted by the EU Commission, although I don't really hold my breath, to be quite frank, but I seriously hope we will uh, be able to do that. These seven citizens are so incredibly brave because they stand up against this despicable attempts by the globalitarian misanthropists to strip us of freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. They simply say no to the attempts of granting an unelected body governing powers. They simply say no. And that's what we all should do, because this will end if we simply say no. And that's what we're here to do today. Because an unelected body like WHO, who is controlled and run by multi-billionaires, should never be allowed to act in place of a democratically elected government. Never, ever. In democracies, ladies and gentlemen, it is government of the people, by the people, for the people. And any government of anywhere in the world who disregards this fundamental principle of democracy by supporting this unprecedented power grab by WHO is an anti-democrat demonstrating nothing but his utter contempt for the people. And these seven brave citizens, they will not stand for this and neither will we. I will expose anyone, whether it's a member of a government in a member state or a government around the world or a member of parliament in the European member states or parliaments around the world who do not respect the people and do not respect democracy, I will see to it. They will be exposed, each and every one of them by name. Because guess what? There is elections coming up and the people might be interested in who is responsible for the abolition of democracy. So we are here today to tell you, WHO, globalitarian misanthropists, we are here today to tell you, you picked this fight, you wanted this fight, well, guess what? You've got it. Let's fight. Because these brave citizens, my colleagues and I, we will not tire to fight you 
every step of the way. These brave seven citizens and millions and millions more around the world, these are the people you will have to reckon with from now on. Because we are millions, millions around the world. It is you that is the small French minority. You are the ones who do not have the right to dictate to the people what they want and what they don't want. So take it from me, take it from us, take it from these seven citizens who gathered here today, take it from the millions and millions of people around the world. We will bring you down and we will not tire until we have done just that. So brace yourselves, we are here and the fight is on. So let's have the fight, let's commence with the fights. Why don't we? Thank you. Wow, there you see why I respect Christine so much. You can see her boldness, her courage, her straightforwardness. Folks, may we all learn from her in that regard. And uh, I'm going to go just write the next topic, and that's Islamization of Europe. Uh, if we discuss this, automatically we're accused of being Islamophobes, uh, racist. Uh, uh, it goes on and on. The name calling starts right at that point. But we've seen the country of Hungary stand for distinctly Judeo-Christian values. And then we've seen the enormous price that's being paid and about to be paid across Europe and the other countries uh, for them not enforcing, allowing people in who embrace the values of Western civilization. Talk to me, how advanced is the Islamization of Europe? Uh, tell us about it. First of all, I would, I would like to unpack uh, uh, a few terms you just mentioned. So we have Islamization for one and Islamophobia for, for, for the second. So um, there has been a movement in, in Germany. It was called Pegida. It was patriotic Europeans uh, in defense of the, uh, 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 the Western world against Islamization. And uh, media, they just went nuts. And because, I mean, they, they were like, what, in Dresden, there were like, what, 25,000 people protesting uh, against this. And the media just went nuts. And they downright denied that there was uh, an Islamization going on. And it, it's so ridiculous because uh, Islamization is a process. And uh, their argument was, well, we, you know, we don't wear uh, the, the niqab or, you know, the hijab or whatever. We, there is nothing around anywhere, da, da, da. So, um, but they were downright denying. But the thing is this, Islamization, like I said, is a process. When you, you cannot deny the existence of a process by arguing it hasn't been completed yet. You are not at the at the finish line, pretty much. No one in their right mind would deny the process of a pregnancy 
with the argument, well, the baby hasn't been born yet. You understand? So that, that's where it starts. Next thing, Islamophobia. What the heck is Islamophobia? So it, it attests, you know, some kind of a irrational fear of Islam. Well, I'll have you know, I am not afraid of Islam. But I object to it in the most strong and possible terms. I consider Islam to be uh, misogynistic, dehumanizing, totalitarian ideology. And that's why absolutely, yeah, object to it and I detest it. And I'm well within my right to do that. The ones that are afraid of Islam are the ones that cater to Islam, you know? They don't speak up, they don't want to offend them, they don't want to do, because they know what will happen. I'll have you, uh, uh, would like to remind you, Charlie Hebdo, when they, you know, things like that. I mean, we've been, we've been to that site, we went there. Yeah, these went things there. are happening. So the ones that are Islamophobic, Islamophobic are the ones that are catering to them. They're not speaking up. They're not, you know, pretty much telling them you cannot, you can and cannot do this, that, and the other. These are the ones who are Islamophobic, but I'm not. Like I said, I pointed out, I'm not afraid of Islam, but I object to it. I even detest it. What and about But what's going on in, in Europe? Uh, in Germany in particular, and that, that's another thing. They say, you know, th these um, various uh, uh, agendas, they, they push, um, and it hasn't occurred to me up, up until a few weeks ago, actually. There's a, a whole, you know, spectrum of agendas they're pushing, but they seem to be doing it in different countries at different times. So you have like the whole climate change and bashing down the farmers in the Netherlands, in Ireland, Canada, even too. Um, then, you know, you have other things in other countries. But in Germany, they seem to be pushing that illegal uh, invasion of, of uh, yeah, illegal immigrants. That's what they're pushing here. Um, yeah, and we are now at a point where um, women are no longer safe walking the streets. It's as simple as that. And uh, the point is this, uh, we were told, you know, we have to be compassionate and, you know, for diversity and, you know, all of that, the goodness of our hearts and all of this and take all these people in. And, uh, but what's happening is all of our accomplishments and achievements that we have reached in the West, Western democracies, um, you know, where we pretty much had had a, a peace in, in the public sphere, you know, for the most part you had it, I could have walked the street any time a day, even at night, you know, I was pretty safe. It's no longer the case. So what we're importing is actually the, um, uh, the, the, the sex apartheid, the apartheid of the, of the sexes. That's what we are importing, what they bring with them. 
That's what we're importing. Now we're talking about having separate carriages on trains for women so they would be safe. We're talking about uh, when you have like, you know, uh, huge public events like uh, Carnival or Fasching. United States would probably be Mardi Gras. You know, there's like a whole street uh, dancing going on and all of that. They're talking about safe spaces for women where they can go to be when once they are, you know, uh, uh, yeah, sexually molested. And we've had this happen on New Year's Eve, uh, 2015, starting 16, 17. It's going on every single year. It leads to the fact that women simply stay at home. They no longer celebrate publicly New Year's Eve or the New Year out of fear they would be sexually abused and sexually molested and even raped. And what we're talking about, um, you have masses and masses of people of these so-called refugees and they come together by thousands. And they just, you know, swamp the women and isolate them, take them away. You know, it's insane. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about there's beheadings going on in broad daylight, for God's sakes. This is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate the time that you have given us. Um, I, I, is this, this would be a kind of a final wrap-up comment for me, and then I'd like to hear your comment. <clears throat> in attending two different events in London, one last June, a small meeting, and then a much larger one just uh, a few weeks ago uh, called ARC, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. In the first meeting, I, I heard some encouraging news in which they felt like the general public was now having been pushed to their limit. And our, their eyes, they were starting to see what's going on. The general public, the person who's not generally all that sophisticated in following the political governmental issues. But two things had pushed them over the edge. Climate change and its implications economically, the, the religion of climate change, the obsessive religion of climate change. And then secondly, transgenderism, taking little boys and cutting off their privates yeah. and calling them girls. Yeah. And, and the, this, this became a bridge too far for people. And finally, yeah. There was among the, I'll call it the mushy middle, or the people who simply are not ad adequately anchored in Judeo-Christian values or understand Western civilization. Finally, they were waking up. We've got to do something. Now, now they are about 10, 20, 30 years too late, but, but at least maybe they're waking up. Is that your perception at all? Um, if so, that's certainly encouraging that at least people are coming aware. Or do you sense that occurring? Yes, I absolutely do. And, um, you know, the thing is just this. Uh, if there's ever been a good thing that came out of this whole COVID madness, it was that parents finally realized and figured out what their kids are being taught, taught at school because of the school closures. You know, they had like these these online uh, uh, whatever lessons and, you know, parents had to supervise them doing that or instructing them. But that's the only good thing that ever came out of this whole COVID madness. Parents realizing what garbage our 
kids are being taught in school. I mean, starting, you know, at an elementary level even. So, um, yeah, but no, they, they are, um, okay, I always try to explain it like this. Um, they are, they want to move that agenda along, right? But they are sensing their window of opportunity is closing because people are waking up. So, um, in that term, they are kind of desperate now and they have to step up their game. And you will notice um, the frequency of, of, you know, whatever new thing they're coming up with, whether it's e uh, digital ID or digital currency or 15-minute ghettos. I, they call them 15-minute cities. I call them 15-minute ghettos. I mean, you know, the frequency uh, at talking about it and how they, you know, advocate, it, it's, it's, it's increasing. That means they know they're running out of time their window of opportunity is closing, leading them to get as much done as possible. But by doing so, they completely overdo it and they completely overplay their hand and they make mistakes. So more people will wake up. More people will start to realize what they are actually out to do. And um, yeah, but it's, it's a good thing that this is happening. Uh, their desperation is it's written all over. Um, but uh, that's a good thing because they will make mistakes and, and they have been doing mistakes and they will continue to make mistakes by implementing their illiberal totalitarian uh, whatever. The, uh, you referenced the 15-minute cities or 15-minute ghettos. That's a, that's a great line for it. Um, for those who are not initiated to what that is, let's just take three minutes on this one. Uh, what is a 15-minute city, or properly named a ghetto, as you've said, and why are they doing that to us? Well, a 15-minute uh, ghetto is uh, pretty much, you know, a place where you can live, and it's all about your convenience, and, you know, um, so you would have everything available within a 15-minute foot walk, because guess what? We're all dying because, you know, we have to save the planet and carbon dioxide. We have to cut down on all of that. And, you know, the whole shebang. Yeah, well, forget whatever I just said. Now, that's what they're telling us. We have to save the planet and, you know, we have to create these communities where people don't have to, you know, travel anymore by car. Um, but the thing is this. This has, it has nothing to do with increasing the quality of your life. It has nothing to do with your convenience. Because if that were the case, then looking at uh, Great Britain, they're, that's the agenda they're pushing in Great Britain, by the way. Um, <clears throat> uh, looking at that, if it was really about your convenience, your quality of life, and you know making life so much better for you, and saving the planet on top of all of that, they would start out by building leisure parks, by, you know, building schools, building libraries, uh, uh, doctor's offices. That's what you would start out with, right? If it was about increasing the quality of your life and, you know, making, making your community a better community. But that's not what they're doing. They're starting out with erecting uh, barricades, 
and surveillance cameras. Now, why would you need barricades and surveillance cameras in a neighborhood that you just love to be in? Well, they want to lock you down. That's what they want to do. In Great Britain, there's already provinces uh, and areas. They already passed legislation that would enable them to impose climate lockdowns. Because that's another thing they came to realize during this whole COVID madness. Um, they couldn't really lock you down to the extent that they wanted to. In Germany, they had to allow you a 15 kilometer radius, uh, which is like what, 30 mi 35 miles, something like that. So, um, because the infrastructure wasn't there. They could not lock you down at your immediate area. It was impossible. People still needed to buy food, blah, blah, blah. That's what they figured out. And now here is the 15-minute ghettos coming along, right? So you will have everything you need within a 15-minute footwalk. It may not be what you want, but it will be everything you need. You don't get to choose anymore what store to buy certain things at. No, as long as, you know, bare necessities, that's what this is all about. They will lock you down. Look to China. This is our future. And here I'm not talking about a future in 30, 40, or 50 years from now. It is happening now as we speak. Now. Uh, Christine, in a moment, <clears throat> we're going to go um, have people praying for you. What, what are the top one or two, three things that people can pray for Christine Anderson? We want to pray God's blessing upon your life. How can people best pray for you? Well, that uh, God will just maintain the strength that I have within me uh, to just keep going. And um, the, the, I, I really, I really need the support of the people. The people need to rise up. The people need to stand up. The people need to speak up because uh, I'm a politician. Um, I'm determined to serve in the best interest of the people. But if they don't let me know what they want, then there is nothing for me to advocate for. Father, I lift up my friend Christine Anderson and ask that you protect her. Uh, give her the wisdom of Almighty God. Uh, I just pray protection supernaturally around her. May the angelic wall be formed to protect her from any evildoers. Watch over her physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. May she uh, sense your closeness. May she draw close to you and you uh, sense the closeness of her with you. Give her supernatural wisdom even beyond her years, even beyond her reading and her study. May she know things supernaturally from your spirit to hers. Show her the revelation of God as she continues to speak with force. As she opens her mouth, give her the words that come from you. Uh, we thank you, Father, that we've lived in countries that enjoyed a freedom and a liberty grounded in the reality of, of the teachings uh, of the scriptures and from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
but Lord, we see the fleeting of this so quickly. So thank you for people like Christine who are willing to stand in countries around the world against the tyranny, the global tyranny uh, that we, we see coming upon us. Give her strength, give her health. And I agree with her, Father, may the people rise up. May, may eyes be opened by the millions around this globe, tens of millions, aware of the intrusionary force of totalitarianism coming in to crush the, the, very, the very nature of humanity created in the image of God. So I pray blessings upon her and that uh, you just fill her with the words of the Lord as she, as she speaks. Bless her and her family in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.